Be Christ's church. Impact the valley. Reach the world. All for the glory of King Jesus. Welcome to the North Roanoke podcast. Today, our lead pastor, Daniel Palmer, will be opening God's word for us. Our prayer is that you will encounter the living Lord as you hear his word proclaimed. Of all the attributes of God that are commended and celebrated in Scripture, uh, the holiness of God, as Pastor Ethan shared with us not too long ago, is, is the one that's repeated three times. He is holy, 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 and all that he is flows from that. We're in Psalm 35, we'll, we'll finish it this morning, but as I was reflecting on that song and the, the holiness of God, I, I want to make sure we, we grab that concept this morning. To be holy is to be uh, entirely other and set apart, uh, and it is to be pure, and, and God is both. God is entirely and perfectly pure, and he is, he is set apart. If you think about creation, and then think about God. One way that we could understand the holiness of God is this way. God is the only uncreated thing, being, entity in the universe and outside the universe, right? What is his name? His name is I am. He just, he just is. He is sheer existence. He has always been and always will be. And it is this God that we are invited to know, to belong to, to to worship and to adore. We are here this morning for God. We are here to magnify God. And as we step back into Psalm 35, we see the servant of the Lord who is in a battle for the sake of the Lord. He is in a battle because he is on the Lord's side. It's not that the Lord's on his side. He's, he's joined forces with the Lord. He's endeavoring to do the will of the Lord in a world that, that stands against that. So we're going to continue last week's sermon on the steadfast servant of the Lord from verses 11 through 28. As I shared with you last week, the Spirit uses the life of David to help us anticipate the life of Jesus who would face unjust attacks and uh, an unfair trial, ultimately leading to the cross. Yet Jesus remains faithful and steadfast because his confidence in the, is in the Lord who's going to deliver him through the trial. We saw last week in verses 1 through 10 that the Lord's servant remains faithful by entrusting the battle and himself to the Lord, by remembering that his enemies won't get the final word, and by looking forward to the day of the Lord's return when, when he would be vindicated, when the Lord will vindicate all of his servants and they'll be raised up to worship him wholeheartedly forevermore. So that's, that's where we finished last week. And today we're going to learn more about the faithfulness of the servant of the Lord as he is facing the fire of the world, the trials of the world. Would you hear with me? Uh, beginning in verse 11 of Psalm 35. Hear with me the word of the Lord. Malicious witnesses rise up. They ask me of things that I do not know. They repay me evil for good. My soul is bereft. But I, 
When they were sick, I wore sackcloth. I afflicted myself with fasting. I prayed with head bowed on my chest. I went about as though I grieved for my friend or my brother. As one who laments his mother, I bowed down in mourning. But at my stumbling, they rejoiced and gathered They gathered together against me. Wretches whom I did not know tore at me without ceasing. Like profane mockers at a feast, they gnash at me with their teeth. How long, O Lord, will you look on? Rescue me from their destruction. My precious life from the lions. I will thank you in the congregation, in the great congregation. In the mighty throng, I will praise you. Would you pray with me? God, help us. Help us to know the joy of waging war on your behalf, even in a world where it can be lonely, it can be dangerous. God, help us look to the end. Help us look with confidence to the finished work of Christ. By your spirit, God, raise and Lift our countenances and our hearts, God, to to labor and to live for the sake of the living Lord Jesus Christ, who is the one who came and laid his life down for us so so that he knows full well what it's like to endure to the end and even through the cross. God, we thank you that you have not been silent, that though you are holy and set apart and transcendent, that you are also right here that you've given us your word. So, so God, teach us today to follow and to obey. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. The first thing I want you to see from uh, the verses that we just read is from verse 11. We must not expect our enemies to deal truthfully with us. I, I think sometimes when we're waging warfare, uh, we think the enemy is going to abide by the same ethics that Christians will. But but the enemy's not going to abide by Christian ethics. In verse 11, if we were not already in a courtroom in verses 1 through 10 or in the context of a trial, we are certainly in a trial now, but it's not a fair trial. The charges come from malicious or ferocious witnesses who ask the Lord's servant of things that he doesn't even know about. The charges are so bogus, he doesn't even know what they're speaking about. It seems that we live in a time when everything has to be reduced to a quip or a social media post or a pithy eight-second soundbite to score points in the court of public opinion. Have you all noticed that? Everything's like, if you, if you can't get it in a, a Facebook post, then it, then it must not be true. Few people, it seems, want to think deeply anymore. Few people, it seems, want to deal in nuance when we want dinner in five minutes or less and a TikTok video is too long if it spans more than 90 seconds. All right, is this this on? Y'all living in this world, right? It's going to take you more than 90 seconds to appreciate who Jesus is. And and we've got a world that's like, man, let's cater to a, 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 a five nanosecond attention span. No, we've, we've got to grow the attention span of, our, of, our, of ourselves. Uh, one result of all this is that it is fairly easy in our world to caricature people 
And sadly, to make Jesus and Jesus' people out to be villains very quickly. Oh, they're just a bunch of haters. They're just a bunch of bigots. We live in a culture where it is in vogue to say that Christians hate people. We live in a culture where it's in vogue to make Christians out to be the problem, to say that we represent a religion and a savior that does nothing good in the world. I suspect most of us could say we often don't recognize what the world is saying about us as they say it, but it's difficult and it's increasingly difficult to advocate for truth when what resonates as truth is what is shortest and shouted the loudest rather than what is actually true, the person of the living Lord Jesus Christ revealed in Scripture. To, to raise the next generation of servants who are going to endure for the Lord, we've got to prepare them to know and live and proclaim truth even when they're likely going to face malicious witnesses. Witnesses who will call them haters and bigots and phobes and frauds because our enemy, get this, our enemy does not care about accuracy, only destruction. Your enemy is not out to be like, oh, well, let's, let's have a debate about what's true. They don't care what's true. They want to destroy what is true. And yet, in a society where lies and half-truths are swirling about and often embraced, the Lord and his people are often and the Lord and his people are often misunderstood and misrepresented. We don't take up swords and stones. Instead, we keep on loving even when it's frustrating. We keep on loving even when it feels like we're losing. In Romans chapter 12, verse 17, Paul says it this way: repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of of all, But as we do this, we need to be sober-minded about the battle that we're in. It is possible to sincerely love our enemies, to pour our lives out for them as Christ poured his life out for us, and yet for them to remain hostile toward us. It's possible to love your enemy and your enemy not to then in turn love you back. Look at verses 12 through 16 where we find that we, we must remain faithful even when our enemies are unmoved by the sincerity of our concern for them. As believers, we should be sincerely concerned for our enemies. We should be sincerely concerned for their eternal destiny, but that doesn't mean they will necessarily care. In verse 12, we see that though, the, though these false witnesses are ruthless, the servant of the Lord has sought their good. Nevertheless, how do they repay him? With evil. And it hurts. Does it, does it not hurt in your workplace to stand for truth and to be called the knuckle-dragon Neanderthal who loves Jesus? Oh, that's just the Jesus freak. I remember when I was in high school, I was called the little Jesus boy in the locker room. That, that didn't feel great, right? The, the word bereft in verse 12 is a word associated with grieving the loss of a child. This guy cares for his enemies deeply. And on the one hand, as we saw last week, the servant of the Lord wants the Lord's holiness to be vindicated for the Lord to take care of the enemies. And yet on the other hand, the servant of the Lord wants good for his enemies. His hope is that his enemies will become his friends through his sincere care for them. We should have that same Hope today. In verse 13, when his enemies were sick, he identified with them in their sickness. He put on sackcloth and was fasting and praying earnestly for them. In verse 14, if one of his enemies died, he felt genuine sorrow, grieving like he was grieving the loss of a friend or even of his own mother. 
But his sincerity sadly did nothing to change their hearts toward him. Instead, in verse 15, as soon as the servant of the Lord stumbled, they were ready to pounce. He was surrounded by people waiting and hoping for him to mess up or to be perceived as messing up. They were sticking around urgently hoping for a gotcha moment. They weren't there for good. They were there for a gotcha moment. As Wilson writes, there's no indication of moral failing by this servant of the Lord. This this stumbling is not moral failure. It's just a moment of vulnerability. The vicious character of the opposition of the enemies is revealed by the nature of their actions. They are gleeful for the opportunity to strike. They attack when the victim is unaware of their presence. They continue their attacks without ceasing. They maliciously mock and they gnash their teeth like threatening beasts of prey. Does this not remind you of what Jesus has already faced for us? Did Jesus not know that he would be viciously attacked by enemies who would refuse to change. And yet he sought to give them every opportunity to be transformed. He told them the truth over and over and over again with sincerity and he sincerely desired for them to embrace the truth. I am reminded from Matthew chapter 23 of Jesus' words. It's one of these pictures that's seared in my mind. He's overlooking Jerusalem where he's going to stand trial, where he's going to be mocked, and then he's ultimately going to be crucified. I'm reminded of Jesus' words as he's ministered and labored and he's tried to get the religious leaders to see he is the Messiah they should have been looking for, but they keep rejecting him. And what does Jesus say in Matthew 23, 37? Oh, Jerusalem. Jerusalem. The city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you were not willing. Even under constant attack, Jesus' sincere desire is for the salvation of even his enemies. So how do we keep loving our enemies with sincerity as the world continues to play its gotcha games? How do we keep loving when we know that many will refuse and twist or abuse our love? How do we keep serving others, speaking truth, and advocating for people and policies that promote human flourishing and the free advance of the gospel in every arena of society when our sincere love is so often returned as an insult or worse? We look to Jesus, who went to the cross for his enemies, for any of his enemies who would repent and believe the gospel. And we also, as we see in verses 17 and 18, we remember that enemy attack will not last forever. Aren't you glad? One day the battle will be done. Like, it's already been won at the cross, but one day you you won't have to battle anymore. I am looking forward to that day. The older I get, the more I look forward to it. Because, like, you know, well, the battle will go away eventually, and it's still here. I can't wait until Jesus returns and the battle is is done. But for for now, to to wage the warfare that we've been entrusted to, to to wage as those who belong to Christ, we've got to remember enemy attack will not last forever. I want to take you on a historical journey back to 1887. 
In the fall of 1887, Charles Spurgeon, a famous, now famous, British Baptist pastor with an exceptional gift for preaching and a devotion, I mean a, a, a riveted devotion to aligning the structures and practices and policies of his local church with the word, he withdrew his church from fellowship with the British Baptist Union at the conclusion of something called the downgrade controversy. At issue was the downgrade in people's commitment, in particular Baptist commitment, to sound doctrine. Riding the winds of the Enlightenment, many pastors and churches in the Baptist Union were willing to, as Spurgeon put it, hold to the inspiration of the Word and yet reject it. Oh yeah, the Bible's true, but it doesn't mean that over here. We'll just ignore that part. They were willing to believe in the atonement, but deny it. Yeah, Jesus is our substitute, but you know, just be a good guy. It'll all work out in the end. And then his third point, they were willing to speak about the punishment of the wicked and yet embrace something called a wider hope in which in the end it all works out and everybody gets saved, which then the question raises, well, why did Jesus die anyway? If, it, if it's all going to work out in the end, regardless of what you do with Jesus, then why did Jesus come and endure a bloody cross? So this is what's stirring about. And, and here's the reality. In every generation, there's going to be a downgrade controversy. In every generation, the church is going to be found to have unpopular doctrines. You mean you believe you can't do anything to earn heaven and you can just trust in a God who became a man and lived a perfect life in your place and died an atoning death for you, that God slaughtered his son because that's the high penalty of your sin and raised him on the third day? You got to believe in that? Oh, that's crazy talk. And then the church is like, well, we don't exactly mean that and because they want to preserve themselves they want to continue on they want to have a budget and a nice building and then they downgrade their doctrine to make it palatable to the world rather than continue to honor Jesus the king of glory it happened in 1887 it happened in in 1984 in the southern baptist convention through about 2000 resulting in a revised statement of faith the baptist faith and message 2000 which is the statement of faith that our church subscribes to. In every generation, you're going to have to stand for sound doctrine. And, and when sound doctrine makes people uncomfortable and the church unpopular, the temptation is to apologize for doctrine and then to adapt it. But Spurgeon wouldn't be associated with a downgrade in doctrine. As Spurgeon made his case. He was, as you might imagine, insulted and questioned in all kinds of ways. His wife said that his fight for the faith ultimately cost him his health and his life. And yet today, it is Charles Haddon Spurgeon who is the hero of the faith and the British Baptist Union, which has faded into oblivion. In the midst of the controversy, Spurgeon shared this insight on how he was able to withstand the attacks as he battled for the truth. To a gathering of pastors and students preparing to be pastors, he said to the pastor's college, For my part, listen to this, 
For my part, I am quite willing to be eaten of dogs for the next 50 years. But the more distant future will vindicate me. You tear me apart for 50 years. But the future I care about will vindicate me. This is the perspective of the Lord's servant in verses 17 and 18. Do you see it? How long, O Lord, will you look on? I love the biblical question, how long, O Lord? I love it. Because it simultaneously captures two truths of the Christian's existence. The pain and the battle is real, but my confidence that God will deliver is likewise real. It really hurts, God. It's really not easy, but I believe that there's a day that it ends. Do you know the battle can rage for a long time? But there's going to be a day when the Lord stops looking at the plight of his servant and instead rescues him and his life from his enemies who are like ferocious lions and he will deliver him into the great congregation, verse 18, or the mighty throng who will praise the Lord. Indeed, this is how Jesus endured the cross, is it not? Trusting that no matter how vicious and callous and calculating the enemies were, some would ultimately be saved through his sacrifice and join the great congregation to praise the Lord, Lord for his salvation. For those who trust in Jesus, we have a share in this battle. We too will be opposed The temptation to downgrade doctrine will surface in every generation. The temptation to join the enemy and to quit the fight for holiness and faithfulness and joy isn't going to go away until we die or he calls us home. But we look to Jesus, knowing a day is going to come when no pain has been wasted and every enemy has been vanquished, and we will join in this great congregation that's anticipated in verse 18, a congregation comprised of people from every nation giving praise to the Lord. So the servant of the Lord endures false charges and people rejoicing in his pain. How? By looking to eternity, knowing that God will save some through his sacrifice and that the Lord will have the praise that he is due and we will be there to be a part of it. But until that day, living for the Lord is a battle for faithfulness to the Lord. It's a battle in a world of enemy attack. And though the battle is often unseen, it is a battle of eternal significance that will be judged ultimately. And I think we need to get this, North Roanoke. I think we need to get this last point. It will be judged ultimately not by men, but by the Lord. And there's going to be some people that die with the world saying, look at that loser. But on the last day... (laughs) Look at that winner, because he, he was fighting a battle on the Lord's side. Let's keep reading, beginning in verse 19 through the end of the song. Let not those rejoice over me who are wrongfully my foes, and let not those wink the eye who hate me without cause, for they do not speak peace, but against those who are quiet in the land, they devise words of deceit. They open wide their mouths against me and they say, ah, ah, our eyes have seen it. You have seen, O Lord, be not silent. O Lord, be not far from me. Awake and rouse yourself for my vindication, for my cause, for, 
my God and my Lord. Vindicate me, O Lord, my God, according to your righteousness, and let them not rejoice over me. Let them not say in their hearts, ah, our heart's desire. Let them not say we have swallowed him up. Let them be put to shame and disappointed altogether who rejoice at my calamity. Let them be clothed with shame and dishonor who magnify themselves against me. Let those who delight in my righteousness shout for joy and be glad and say evermore, great is the Lord who delights in the welfare of his servant. Then my tongue shall tell of your righteousness and of your praise all the day long. See, that's a lot of verses to cover. It could be a whole sermon. It could, but I'm going to break it down or reduce it down to one point. You ready? To, to fight the battle for faithfulness to the Lord, we have to rest our case not in the court of public opinion, Amen. but with the Lord. We really have to be satisfied to be right with the Lord and the Lord alone. In verses 19 through 21, we see that the enemies of the Lord's servant don't just want to win, they want to spike the football and dance obnoxiously in the end zone. They want to rejoice over those who serve the Lord as they wink their eyes to one another and make insinuations about the Lord's servant. Ah, I got that guy. Yeah, that guy. We kicked his backside. Woo! The ultimate enemies of God's people the unholy trinity of the world system and the flesh and the devil do not want you to thrive for the glory of God. You got that flesh on the inside that just craves attention. You got Satan who wants to stoke the fires of that. And you got a world system that wants to downgrade Jesus and take him out all together. They don't want you to thrive for the glory of God. They want to make you an example to gloat over and then cause others to fear following the Lord because they'll become an example to be gloated over as well. They will make up stuff to accomplish this. They'll throw all kinds of fears and concerns your way that are unfounded. But praise the Lord for Jesus, a Savior who knows all about this battle and the unjust attacks. And praise God that the Holy Spirit has united you with this Savior, that you might have the, the same insight and power to navigate this world that is set against God's people. When Jesus confronted the Jewish leadership and popped their inflated heads with the gospel truth that none of their self-righteousness would ever reach the righteousness of God. They hated him without cause. Jesus quotes the end of verse 19 in John 15, 25 to tell us that this psalm ultimately is about Jesus. They, they, gla they gloated over him. They winked the eye at him, making insinuations about Jesus and plotting against him. And the world didn't stop with Jesus, did it? The world continues this pattern today against God's people. The world does not want peace with God's people. Rather, they are set against God's people, the people who dwell in the land of his grace. Verse 20, they devise deceitful words against us because they don't want people to experience the joy that comes from following King Jesus and living his way. The world doesn't want the world to have peace with God. So they devise things against us. I remember at Virginia Tech, I was a graduate student a few years ago. I was thinking about that last night as I was thinking through my sermon. And um, 
I was a graduate student at Virginia Tech 24 years ago. Yeah. <laughs> what in the world? Like, when did that happen? Like, I, I anyway, it, it didn't seem, doesn't seem like 24 years ago. But I was, I was in um, the, the Master of Public Administration and Policy cohort. And it's, it's really interesting. Virginia, Texas, massive university, but there's this little house almost like off the campus where the weird public administration and policy people are. And there were 12 people in my cohort, and it was an incredible opportunity to share the gospel. I had the opportunity to magnify Christ in just about every class. Um, Stacy and I were dating, uh, engaged, about to get married, and um, I, went, I went to the bar uh, on Thursday nights after class and had my Dr. Pepper, and uh, everybody else, you know, had their, their favorite beverage. And uh, one time I finally got the question that I've been waiting for, like, why don't you drink like the rest of us? And I got to share the gospel. It was awesome. Um, the university passed a policy creating safe spaces on campus. Have you all heard about safe spaces? Like safe speech zones? And uh, they were all excited about it. And they had this big sticker on the wall in, in our, in our uh, house where we gathered for our class. And this is a safe speech zone. And I'm like, um, does that mean I'm safe to preach or proclaim the gospel anymore? Oh, no, you can't do that. Right? We don't want to hear about the intersection of, of Jesus and the world Everything, you're, basically you're safe to say that everything the world is doing that is anti-God is good and you're not safe to say, you know, God is God and he's holy. We sang about him just a little bit ago and he has a standard that is outside of man that is unattainable apart from Jesus. Yeah, don't say that. Say anything else you want to say, but that's not safe. And I'm like, well, I don't feel safe anymore. I felt safe to proclaim the gospel and now I feel like I'm at, at well... You can do whatever you want to do because we don't want to go to court. So whether they tell you there's a safe zone or a no-hate zone or whatever, you just keep proclaiming the gospel. But don't be surprised that they'll use words like no-hate and safety to actually be expressing their hate and their anti-safety towards people who are following the Lord. In verse 21, we see that the enemies set their traps looking for a moment when they can say, ah, ah, we saw him mess up. We saw him fail. For the Pharisees, they claimed Jesus was a blasphemer and a threat to Rome. Jesus was neither. Accuracy wasn't needed, only an accusation. Of course, they claimed to be eyewitnesses. Ah, we saw him do it, verse 21, even though they struggled, as we know in Jesus' case, to even agree on what his crime actually was. And in verse 22, we find the response of the Lord's servant. While the enemies bear false witness against him, contrary to Exodus 20:16, breaking their own law, by claiming they saw a crime, the Lord Jesus has truly seen He's seen actions, words, motives, hearts, and the one who serves the Lord in integrity, no matter how bogus the charges and menacing the enemies, he can call upon the Lord. She can call upon the Lord to speak in her defense, as David does in verse 22. Do you see verse 22? They claim to have seen me mess up, 
And then what does David say in 22? Lord, don't be silent because you have seen, don't be far from me. God saw, God knows. Then in verse 23 and 24, he calls on the Lord to wake up. Awake, rouse yourself to take the judge's bench and to vindicate him according to the Lord's righteousness, verse 24. Now, we know that the Lord was never asleep, right? In fact, other places in the psalm, we read the Lord number, the Lord never slumbers or sleeps. But when you're in the battle and you're getting beat up, sometimes it feels like the Lord's not awake. So David's like, wake up, God. When you're being crucified for following the Lord, sometimes you need the Lord to, to come and take a stand. And it doesn't always have to be people who are standing against you, right? It can be Satan using other people. It can be your flesh giving you fits of doubt and discouragement and doing the Lord's work. Whatever or whoever it is, the servant of the Lord can call upon the Lord as judge and leading witness. He sees it all and he judges perfectly. So David asks for vindication not according to public opinion, but according to the righteousness of God. He is, his plea is that it will be said and shown by the Lord that he has done right, that the Lord will get the last word, that the enemy's rejoicing and false accusations and gloating will be turned upside down, that they, verse 26, will not get to rejoice in the demise of the righteous, but instead will be put to shame and disappointed altogether and clothed with shame and dishonor. Here's what the servant of the Lord is praying for, a sudden reversal, a sudden and shocking reversal. And I'm here to tell you, if you are on the Lord's side, a sudden and shocking reversal is coming for the world that is set against you. A sudden and shocking reversal is coming against the world that lies to you and tells you you got to have more money and keep up with the Joneses and have a better career and do all this stuff to have a fulfilled life that, that tells you that the fulfilled life is outside of Jesus. A sudden reversal is coming. I love a sudden and, ex and unexpected reversal in sports, don't you? Some of you are like, I don't care about sports. Paul's like, a sports analogy, please, Daniel. But for the rest of you who enjoy uh, a, good, a good sports game, whether it's basketball or football, you know, one of my favorite videos, you just go Google it, is, is when the home basketball team scores the bucket with like 0.5 seconds left and everybody goes nuts and the fans are going crazy and they're starting to come out, but there's still 0.5 seconds on the clock. And the visiting team lobs it in, the guy catches it and throws it up and hits a three-quarter court shot, and it's like instant dagger in the heart of the home team. It's like you could take the air out of the room. You, maybe you've seen the, the one of the football game where the home team, I can't even remember the teams who were playing, but it was a, it was a college football game, and the, the, the home team went up with like two seconds left on the clock. And the, the fans are going nuts and the band's going crazy. And they start coming literally out of the stands onto the football field. But there's still time for a kickoff. And they kick the ball off and the guy like blows through the football, the would-be tacklers. And then he's dodging like the guy with the big bass drum. <laughs> he's like walking on the field. And he goes into the end zone and he scores a touchdown and like the fans are on the stands. I mean, the fans who are in the stands are now on the field and like you see 
the jubilation on their faces become, what just happened? (laughs) And then their mouths hang open in sudden defeat. One day, for everyone who stands against King Jesus and his people, it's going to be just like that. With no chance for a comeback. David says, turn the gloating against the godly into their gloom. Turn their pronouncements of victory into my vindication. Why do you like a good comeback story? Because it's embedded in the gospel. Lord, turn the tables against those who magnify themselves against me. Judge me not according to the standard of public opinion, but according, verse 24, to the standard of your righteousness, because I am living for you, God. Would to God that we could say that. And then in verse 27, he writes the opposite. Those who magnify themselves against me, let them face their doom and their gloom. But then in verse 27, let those who delight in my righteousness shout for joy and be glad and say evermore, great is the Lord who delights in the welfare of his servant. Now, if we didn't know that Psalm 35 was about Jesus already, we know it now because the servant of the Lord says, judge me according to your righteousness in verse 24. But now in verse 27, he says, let those who delight in my righteousness shout for joy. How is this possible? Because the Lord Jesus Christ is the Lord who has the righteousness of God. And so he perfectly fulfills the righteousness of God and comes and lives and dies in our place such that if we delight in Jesus, who the the Lord our Father delights in, we've delighted in the one who can deliver us from our unrighteousness into the righteousness of the Lord such that we can be on the right side when the game is over. This is an incredible reality. In verse 24, the servant prays for vindication according to the Lord's righteousness, but now David speaks of people who delight in his righteousness. And we know David was not a perfect dude. David was a messed up guy. Like, he did some stuff that would get him be, uh, fired from Pastor of North Road Baptist Church. You see me walking on my roof looking at somebody that's not my wife and then following through on the lustful thoughts of my heart. Daniel's not going to be the pastor of North Roanoke anymore. And yet David is called a man with a heart after God. How in the world was that possible? Because the transformation God made in his life by faith in the promised son who would come that he's writing about in Psalm 35. David's righteousness is not his own righteousness. It is the righteousness that he has by faith in Jesus Christ. Therefore, it becomes his righteousness. And because he is righteous, he can be vindicated by the standard of the Lord's righteousness, no matter what public opinion says, because he's right with God through faith in the son of God. And if we, like David, We'll stop looking at the world and listening to the lies of the enemy and TikTok, thank you. 
and squirreling our lives away based on what everybody else thinks and instead look to Jesus, recognize that we are sinners in need of a Savior who did for us what we could not do for ourselves and we will connect our lives with Him by believing in Him, being united with Him by the Spirit and say, God, I'm going to be in this battle with you and for you and for your glory. So help me, God. He'll meet you in that and He will vindicate you on the last day when mouths are hanging wide open going, I had no idea that God was real. I had no idea that God was holy. I had no idea that God would actually judge according to His righteousness. You will be on the side that is celebrating. So be sure, when that day comes, that your righteousness is the righteousness of God through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And in the meantime, confidently fight the enemies of the world, the flesh, and the devil, knowing that one day soon, you will join in the mighty throng, in the mighty congregation of verse 28. And your tongue, along with billions of other tongues, will tell of the righteousness of God and we will praise Him all day long. If you have that hope, praise God. If you don't have that hope, you can have it today. Would you pray with me? God in heaven, I pray that you would have your will and your way in this room. God, there, there are people in this room fighting a battle. They, they are fighting a battle for for faithfulness, and I don't know what pressures they're facing, what lies they're, they're facing, tempting them to, to quit or to, to move in a new direction other than the direction of Christ. But God, I pray that, that a message like this would, would fortify their faith and would, would give them resolve to endure with Christ. And God, there's others in this room, they, they don't know where their faith is. They don't know if they have the righteousness of God. They don't, they don't know, as, as, the, as the fans start to celebrate, whether they're going to be on the winning side or the losing side. God, I pray today they would settle that once and for all. Stand with Jesus. Be redeemed by Jesus. God, we thank you for the truth of the gospel and we thank you for the privilege of bringing us together to worship you today. And God, I just pray you'd move for your glory and, and our good. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the North Roanoke podcast. You can connect with us at northroanoke.org or download our app in your device's app store. Just search for North Roanoke. We hope to meet you soon.